I have just launched a mastermind called The Circle of Influence, where I'll be taking you under my wing to show you how to build a platform online that generates an income for you so you can have more freedom in your life. I'm also gonna show you how to become a powerful influencer online so that you can score interviews and so you can get exposure on major publications and platforms. And I'm gonna even show you how to build these platforms yourself, such as a website, a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a social media following so that you can get your message out there to millions. I'm also going to show you how to network with other incredible leaders online so that you can interview them and so that you can collaborate with them and really show you how to refine your story so you can share it in an unforgettable way to score more interviews, to score book deals, and to gain more speaking opportunities so that you can become a powerhouse leader. Now, if this speaks to you, make sure you head over to IamJoelBrown.com slash apply and get in before I close my doors on this live interactive exclusive opportunity where I'm going to go deep with you and with the community of Circle of Influence Game Changers. Don't miss this. Now let's get into this interview. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Addicted to Success podcast. I'm your host, Joel Brown, and I'm here today with Michael Michalowicz, who is a multiple seven-figure entrepreneur who is also a multiple business bestseller author. I'm so excited, Michael, for you to jump in today and to share with us how we can really start leading with profits first in our business and how we can transform our business from a cash-eating monster to a money-making <laughs> machine. I love that. I love it. I love it. I know your book has uh, been on the, the uh, circuit for a while yeah. now, a couple of years, right? I have seen it like out there. I've seen a lot of people saying that it's a great book to read. So I'm excited to jump in with you, the man who actually wrote the book to really share your words of wisdom. So welcome to the A2S podcast. Joel, thank you so much for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun today. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So let's dive into this. Profit psychology. What is this and why profit psychology? Why are you so passionate about this? Yeah. So, uh, well, the inception for me, I guess, was uh, actually I know for sure. I built some companies and while outwardly they were successful, I, they were multi-million dollar businesses. I sold them. One was a private equity deal. Another one was a Fortune 500 exit. And they did make me money when I sold them. They were never profitable when I ran them. They were always struggling and I, the stress was overwhelming. I uh, subsequently started a third business that I evaporated all my wealth. I became an angel investor and I was horrible at it and just wiped out everything. And I was in this, is in, in this kind of pump and dump mentality, grow these businesses and sell them. That's how you make money. And that's when I had my awakening that profitability is not something that's an eventuality. So profit's not an event. Like you don't wait for it. Profit needs to be baked into every transaction. So I, I say profit's not an event. Profit is a habit. The, the other thing that shocked me, Joel, was uh, there was a study conducted. And I don't know the exact source, but uh, the SBA has identified there's 180 million small businesses globally. Companies doing $25 million US or less. It's almost every business. 95% of the business makeup uh, of the world is small business. 83% of these businesses are in check-to-check -check survival, just like I was. Selling something today, hopefully to cover the bills for tomorrow not having enough money uh, to pay myself ever. It was this constant check-to-check -check survival. And 82% of the businesses are experiencing this. So what hit me is the reason we started our business, all of us, I think is 
well, maybe for two reasons. One is, is it gives us joy. Secondly, for financial freedom. Like that's why we do this. Yet we can't figure out the financial freedom part. Like that makes no sense. The reason we do this is the biggest failure point. And that's when I came to appreciate there is a formula that is crushing our businesses. It's the traditional formula for profitability. And what it says is sales minus expenses results in profit. Here's the problem with that formula. It says that profit comes last. And how most of us treat it is we're constantly trying to sell more, sell more. We're investing in our business to grow, 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 which is expenses. We hate to use the word expenses. So we say reinvestment and plow back and soft terms like that. And then at the end of the year, when there's no profit, we're like, damn it, you know, maybe next year. And we, we kick the can down the road for another year before considering profit. So this is a psychological flaw in that formula. Anything that comes last, it's human nature. When something comes last, it's insignificant. Like if, if you love your family, I'm sure you don't say, I put my family last. If you care about your health, you don't say, you know what? I'm going to start putting my health last. It comes first. It comes first, gets prioritized, and gets done. And in the old formula, sales minus expenses equals profit, we're told to sell. So everyone's focused on grow, 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 and reinvest, plow back, push you know, expenses, grow, 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 grow. And no one worries about profit. What I propose with profit first is simply flip the formula. It's sales minus profit equals expenses. And in practice, every time we have a sale, we now take a predetermined percentage of that sale, that deposit, transfer the money into a profit account, hide it away from our business, and live off the remainder. It's the, the pay yourself first principle applied to business. Right, I see, I see. And with a lot of young entrepreneurs that are coming out nowadays, I feel like with the online world, there are a lot of business models where there is less overhead yeah. Uh, so they're diving in a lot with like, wow, I'm, this is such a profitable business. Then there's taxes that come into play and <laughs> they yeah. get so used to making all the profits with low overhead and then the taxes, they forget about that too. So do you see that too? No question about it. I think the least prepared for bill or the most ill-prepared we are for a business-related bill is our taxes. And a consequence of running a business is that you'll have a tax liability. And I'm not just saying the corporate, the owners in the business, the people who have equity in the business will have a tax liability and it's the least prepared for a bill yet. It's the largest associated bill to our business for almost every business. So what we do with profit first is profit first is a bank balance based system. And what I mean by this is most entrepreneurs I found if they're like me, don't read their accounting statements. We don't know how to read a balance sheet and cash flow statement and tie it into our income statement. I sure as heck don't. But I do have a real simple system. I log into my, my bank. And if I have money, I know I can spend. And if I don't, I have to sell something to somebody and panic ensues. So what we do is we set these accounts at our bank because that's our natural path. If we're already logged into our bank accounts, we need these accounts here to pre-allocate money to its intended use before we spend it. So we set up an account called profit to address a reserve for the owner who took risk. We set up an account called tax to address that specific challenge and we allocate money toward the tax and therefore when the tax bill comes you can see the money accumulating in reservation for that most important bill and, and i'll tell you this if you don't pay your taxes you are going to jail or you're or you're gonna get penalized if you go into some installment plan the, the the cost of not paying it is tremendous so therefore we need to prepare for it and and one final point Historically, a business owner, if they take a $1,000 deposit in, they'd say, oh, I have $1,000. You start realizing the truth is you don't. When $1,000 comes in, it has multiple responsibilities to pay owner distributions in, in profit, to pay a salary to the owner-operator, 
to reserve for taxes for the operations of the business. So when $1,000 comes in, you actually may have $400 really to operate your business because you have all these other responsibilities the money must cover. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes people, if they haven't got their numbers right, they have this distorted view of how much they think they actually have. Right. So true. Yeah. I've been there before. Definitely been there before, especially when I started addicted to success. You know, I had these payments coming through and uh, when we started ramping up and doing some Facebook advertising and, and I wasn't paying attention to taxes the next year, I was like, I was like, wow. Like I didn't realize, like I had, I had like a, a good amount of taxes to pay. And my accountant said to me, he's like, Joel, if you got the numbers right and you actually like sat down with it and looked at it with us, you could have actually brought another staff member on board instead of paying the government, the taxes, you could have had a staff member and you would have, you know, could have doubled or at least times and a half your uh, your output and productivity and that just hit me so hard i had to pay attention to the numbers in my business yeah we need a, a trigger and I, I think to your point what i found that most entrepreneurs don't do is read the accounting software uh they, they don't know how to log in uh and, and pull up the reports and my argument is don't try to figure it out you know for accounting's existed for 300 modern accounting for 300 plus years and entrepreneurs struggle with it yet we're told you've got to learn the accounting you have to be masterful of finances and that's not the truth our accountant needs to be masterful that's why we hire him or her what we need to be masterful is identifying the triggers because once we identify a trigger of a problem or an opportunity then we turn to the expert and ask for their help so with private first uh there's a simple cash flow analysis that happens just by logging into your bank account you see the flow of cash because what profit first encourages you to do is what most entrepreneurs already do Keep logging to your bank account every morning or as frequently as you want. See what money is allocated to a purpose. And as you see, um, for example, in this case, OPEX, the money available to operate your business is dwindling, yet your tax reserve is increasing. Well, that's a call to your accountant. Say, hey, listen, I'm reserving more and more taxes. I have less operating expenses. What does this circumstance mean? And that's when the accountant says, oh, let's do an analysis on your finances. You know what? You could hire a person to facilitate growth. That'll reduce your tax consequence. And uh, we can take some of those funds in taxes and start allocating to operating expenses. So the goal, and I think the fallacy is, the goal is not to look at your accounting. I think the fallacy is we're told you got to be good at accounting. You got to be good at math. And we just tear our hair out. And many entrepreneurs revert to not looking at anything. Now what we can do is just continue the natural behavior, log into your bank accounts, and the triggers will be there to, to call in the professionals. Yeah. No, I definitely feel that. That's such sound advice. Thanks for sharing that with us. Now, if you were to pick a chapter from your book that stands out the most, only one chapter, what would that be? Well, so this is a very personal one. It's and the why? opening with the opening chapter because I write about, I call it the piggy bank moment. And... Uh, if I think about it, I start getting upset because it was such a turning moment in my life. When I lost all my money, I, I told you, I, so I built these companies. I was a self-made millionaire in my early 30s. I thought it was hot shit. I was like, mm, look how great I am. My, <laughs> I, I, was, I, just, I became a big dick and I didn't realize it. I was arrogant. I was like, I want to show off my cars. I, had, I was driving around in a Dodge Viper, which I now call the trophy of dicks because it's just so obnoxious with the loud engine. Blah, blah, blah moved into the most expensive town I could afford, like all that stuff. And I also said to support my new standard of living, I need to become an angel investor so I can start multiple businesses at once. That's why I started these 10 companies. I had no right to be in that space. They all, felt, they all collapsed. My, my come to Jesus was, 
I got a call from my accountant and said, Mike, um, we've been reviewing your numbers. And as much as you had this, you know, this extraordinary explosive success, you've had just as a dismal failure. Because I never thought I'd say this to you in my professional life, but it's my recommendation you immediately declare personal bankruptcy. And uh, I, the weird thing is, Joel, I had seen my, I knew my money was going away. Logically, I knew it. Emotionally, I couldn't accept it. I thought that turning moment was around the corner. That some client would save the day or an investor would want to buy me out yet again. It didn't happen this time. And um, I had to go home to my family to tell them we were going to lose our house. We lost it 30 days later. I, by, by the way, I never declared bankruptcy. I decided my responsibility was to fix my problems and not to put this on creditors. So I was going to dig my way out. Um, but I had to evaporate wealth quickly, liquidate. So I got rid of my house 30 days later. We lost our cars, possessions, everything. Here was the, the moment. I, I had to go to my daughter. She was nine years old. We we're sitting at our dining room table. I'm sobbing, ashamed because I had been lying to my family by omission saying everything's great. Well, this is the day I say we, we, I've lost everything. It's gone. My little nine-year-old daughter, I told her, I can't afford to pay uh, for your horseback riding lessons. I, I don't have enough money to afford it. I was, I was broke. I don't have the $20 to pay for a group session. And as she, as I said this, she, she stood up and she ran as fast as she could, those little legs carrying her out of the room. And I remember that moment of her running away, feeling such a scumbag that my own daughter was so frightened and scared of what I brought to our family that she felt running, like running away. I mean, we're entrepreneurs, we're the providers and I'm the guy who ripped it away from her thing was she wasn't running away. She ran to her bedroom to grab her piggy bank. And as fast as she could, she ran back to me. She goes, daddy, daddy. She goes, I'll start providing for our family. And uh, that moment, yeah, um, it makes me really, I get goosebumps and I get upset if I really think about it. That moment, I can see it was such clarity, Joel, such vividness. That moment is my rock bottom moment in my life. And it woke me up to... um, I don't understand finances. I was totally arrogant about it. Luck was uh, the, the reason I was successful, not because of planning and coordination. And I committed, not that day. It wasn't like the next morning I woke up and said, I got this. I actually went through depression for a few years. Um, but I realized that was a seed for there's got to be a better way. And I decided to no longer be um, an entrepreneur in the tech space. That's where I was before but to become an author and to devote my life to solving entrepreneurial challenges, to make entrepreneurship simpler. And um, that's what I've done ever since. I love that, man. It's so funny how like that pain that we have, it can turn into our power. It's the thing that you now get to share with others. I know at the time it wasn't very fun or enjoyable for you and your family. Uh, But like even that in itself, that taught your daughter something as well. I think so. Yeah. You know, here's the funny thing. So my daughter now is 21 years old. So this, this all went down 12 years ago and I pulled her aside just recently. And I, I said to her, I said, her name is Adela. I said, Hey, Adela. I said that, that day, I'll never forget it. You carrying that piggy bank down. And I, I can remember every detail. And I said, what, what do you think about that moment? And she looked at me, she goes, I don't know what you're talking about, dad. <laughs> and <laughs> for a second, I felt def- this, this air deflate out of me. I'm like, it was so important. She goes, I don't remember any of that. And then what I came to realize is that's how she was wired. She, she loved our family just as much as I love our family. And, and she felt in that moment that she had something to offer. This is how she's wired. So what, what was life-changing for me 
was routine for her. To, to be a giver and contributor was routine, and I, I was just learning this from my daughter. Um, so, yeah, that moment, I'll never forget. It. And, and I'm, I'm, I'm proud of that chapter, the opening chapter of my book, because I don't want, I don't want to dump my, my skeletons on other people. But I felt compelled because I, I, I don't want people's sympathy or empathy, but what I do want is for people not to feel alone. And as, as I get feedback from readers and as I speak at conferences, people say, I, I've got that piggy bank moment or something worse, abuse of, of the worst type. And um, that pain can become our purpose. You're right. Others, it can keep us trapped. Um, so I just wanted, at least in some small way, for the readers to know they're not alone. I love that, man. Thank you so much for sharing that with us on Thanks this podcast. Wow, that is amazing and so heartfelt. So this conversation around money mindset has been big lately, and especially in the last three episodes that we've had uh, on the A2S mm. podcast. Now, you have had this experience of having to liquidate, right? And then you've gone on to create multiple seven-figure businesses. Yeah. So with that, you obviously take your mindset with you. How do you view your money mindset? Like when you think about money, creating businesses, what do you think it is that gives you that edge that allows you to go on to create multiple seven-figure businesses? So um, I, I do have four businesses now. Um, Authorship being my primary function uh, and business, but I also have a membership organization, uh, a coaching organization, an augmented reality company. And what I realized in that moment is that money is simply an amplifier of the humanness that we are in that moment. Here's what I mean. If, if, if I was a drug addict and you gave me a lot of money, that will not solve my drug addiction. In fact, it would amplify it, right? Because now I have more access to the drugs. If I um, am a, a contributor and I like to donate money uh, to my community regularly and you give me more money, I will donate more uh, aggressively. Um, I, I really believe money amplifies who we are. So I had to, through a period, get really in tune with who I was. Um, and... It also set a purpose for me. My life's purpose now, it's clear. I am here to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. There's this gap. There's this belief. Like the day, anyone watching this or listening in, the day you start your business, your friends are like, oh my God, you're a millionaire now. You sit on the beach drinking Mai Tais all the time. You know, you're just hanging out. And the reality is we're here. We have no money. Um, we're working our ass off and we're panicked. This gap is what I call entrepreneurial poverty. And my goal is to close that for entrepreneurs. Well, as I've built these businesses, um, I've realized as, the, as it generates money, it allows me to serve my purpose more. It amplifies that. So now I have a thirst to make money in order to be a bigger contributor. Um, now, listen, I, I don't live like a pauper. I want to live a lifestyle of comfort for myself, my family, but there's even purpose there. Like as my, my wife and I build our future and plan for it, we're developing it for inclusion of our family. And, and so any investments we make is all about, does this build a stronger, healthier family? Um, and the business, as money flows in, how do I make it a stronger, healthier business? So money's become a tool of service as opposed to a tool of expression. That, that's how I perceive money now. Mm, I love this. I love it. And you do hear it often. And it's more about the impact, right? It's like doing something uh, for 
someone or something that is greater than yourself. It has to be that thing that is above all, you know, it can't just always be about you. And, and I know this yeah. too, you know, like I know that whenever I've tried to look for the external material to light me up, if I'm not in alignment myself, I'm not going to continue to get the results that I desire. It's always going to be like quick term, you know, things and short term wins. It's, it's, it's not playing the long game and feeling like really proud of like, wow, we made this happen, you know, long term. And it's also impacted the lives of others, not just myself. You're, you're, I think it was Les Brown who said your message is in your mess. Same as you, you know, your purpose is in your pain. And um, I, you know, I had heard in the past, like you got to do something bigger, but it was artificial for me. So before that turning moment, the piggy bank moment, um, I still wanted to do good things, but it was arbitrary. Like, oh, I'll just give a lump of money to this group and I'll feel good. And it, it, it didn't. I think it's that, realization of that sensation of actually having a shift to, to getting your hands dirty in that community. I, um, I have a speech coming up this week and I, I speak so frequently that um, the nervousness has gone away. I still get butterflies every time before I go up, but I'm not like panic nervous except for this one speech. My old high school has invited me to go back and speak in the auditorium to high schoolers. And I remember being the high school student there, you know, wanting to throw tomatoes at the speaker, like, you suck. And I'm like, now <laughs> I'm the guy who sucks. Um, but at the same time, there's, there's this excitement that I have an opportunity here to, I don't know how many kids will be in the room, but, but some of them maybe are going to be ready in that moment to hear words that put them on the, a purpose path, that, that give them direction. So I'm ex panicked about this, but also nervous about it. But the, the funny thing is of the sense of purpose to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty, to have a mission, to do something greater, it becomes such a motivator. Instead of running away from something or even running towards something, it, it's like a magnet that's actually pulling you. It, you. You can't even help but be sucked into it once you really identify a purpose, I believe. So this, this high school event, I'm, I'm nervous. The students may boo me. But I also, at the same time, feel so compelled because this is this is what I need to do. Yeah. <laughs> I love that you shared that. It, that's funny. It does. It does I'll feel get like beat up after afterwards. High school is like punching me in the face. This guy sucked. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Always like your, you know, high school fears start coming back to you. Oh it, and it, the thing is, we do have that like inner child, that inner teenager still in us at times that like needs a little bit of nurturing and needs, you know, we need to pay attention. Like, wow, that's a little bit of the old memories coming up with the old fears. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it's, it is interesting that came up for you. So we have a lot of speakers, coaches, uh, those that offer, you know, online products, uh, services of even, transformational coaching, meditation, awesome. yoga, whatever it may be. We have a lot of listeners right now that are aspiring in that space. How would they be able to make a business like that profitable? Because I know, like, and it's great for you to be able to answer this because you are that too. Yeah. You're an author and a coach too and a speaker. So what has worked for you that would work for our listeners? So I, I am actually surprised how many people don't do this. Quite a few authors do that I have met over time, but the vast majority don't license your intellectual property, make it. But what you've made, if you write a book or you've prepared a speech, you've created a system. There's something that's repeatable, right? The, the speech you deliver over and over again. And, you know, it's a canned speech. Those rehearsed, it comes across as fresh. It's canned. 
when you write a book, it's been researched out and now it's documented. We've created systems. So what I do is every book I write, I license out to an organization to own the rights. So let me give an example. One of my books is called Clockwork. And Clockwork is about business efficiency. The subtitle is Design Your Business to Run Itself. A company in Florida, I went to them and said, listen, I'm going to sell this book. Uh, I intend it to be popular. I'm going to market it to be popular. Um, I'm going to put in this book that there's one licensed uh, training center. You can be the, the training center. And they paid me a substantial licensing fee plus 15% of revenue into perpetuity off of any services they provide. My wow. job in that relationship is to sell more books. So because that, that builds the marketing for them. And it's, it's on the brink of being a million dollar plus business after one year of operations. So the owner, her name is Adrian Dorson. Her and her team are very happy and, and I'm very happy. I did this again with Profit First. So we started Profit First Professionals. And it's, that's actually the fastest scaling one um, size wise, uh, but it's licensed out. And I've done it for the pumpkin plan and I have a brand new book, Fix This Next, I'm revealing, doing the same thing. I'm surprised how many authors and speakers have written a book or have a, a speech that is really impactful and powerful, but they're the only one carrying that voice. And now you're, now you're in the time for money trap. The only way you can generate money is you've got to speak more often and you can only speak so many times. Uh, you've got to push those books harder and harder and, and live off the, th you know, if you publish a book through a traditional publisher, $3 a book is what you make. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a more difficult life. License out your intellectual property. And here's the other thing. There is a tremendous amount of coaches and experts who don't want to create the system. Their passion is to teach a system. If you ever look at like, when you went to grow up to high school or grade school, all those people that work there as teachers love and get joy, I hope, out of teaching. They don't want to create math. They want to teach math. The vast majority of the world wants to be the teacher or the conduit. It's the rare minority that is speaking regularly on it as a topic expert or writing a book on it. So that's the opportunity, license. Oh, I love this. I've created a few systems myself. And actually, a lot of uh, coaches that I coach, I often challenge them and ask them, what makes you different from everybody else? Yeah. And a lot of them don't have systems. Yeah. And I say it's going to be really hard to market because now you need to brag your ass off to try and sell you uh, rather than go, here's a system. When people join this system and follow the steps and pop out the side and get the results, this is the results they get. Oh, yeah. And by the way, I come along with this too to support you and hold you accountable. I love it. It's I, uh, so much easier to market that, isn't it? It's so much easier to market that. Here's what the real power um, this has happened specifically with Profit First. So Profit First, we've certified now 400, I think it's actually 450 accountants and bookkeepers globally. We, we actually opened an office in Melbourne, Australia, another one in Armisfort, Netherlands, and we have one here in the US and we're now investigating Canada. And what's happened this is a very kind of practical experience. Last Friday, I was out doing a keynote uh, on Profit First. Uh, our end of day summary was there was seven profit first keynotes delivered that day. I only delivered one, six other people, uh, through our network have been trained on giving a profit first speech, have modified the speech slightly to speak to their specific expertise, usually industry expertise, and are out there delivering keynotes. One of the persons spoke to a, th a member audience of a thousand people and it wasn't me. It was Cindy Thomason. Cindy Thomason, who speaks to uh, Profit First for e-commerce, was engaged on one of the biggest e-commerce events, and she was the keynote on the methodology. 
Profit First now has this massive, this, this growing exposure because I'm not the only one doing this. I think we, we all as experts have that same opportunity is the realization, and this, this was a real ego check. Originally, I said, profit first is mine. I invented profit first. I, got, I thought, like, I'm such a great guy. Then I realized, oh, I'm just a, a cog in the wheel. I, I may have been the one who put the pen to paper first, but there's all these other people who are just as passionate about the subject or content as I am. They're the teachers. They didn't want to write it. They want to teach it. So profit first is as much Cindy Thomason's as it is Sean Van Dyke's, as it is Suzanne Marigo's, as it is mine, as these other people put the word out. They're the teachers carrying the torch forward. And I think that's, I can't say Profit First is a movement. I think that's a grand statement. But Profit First is gaining traction beyond me because I've released, in, in part, my ego from having to get attribution every single time to the concept. I, I think the folks listening in right now, if we can do that, if we can realize we have systems, you can sell that, you can license it. Secondly, if you're willing to to release the ego from having to get attribution constantly and give life to the concept as the most important thing as opposed to you, that transition point, as much as I've been able to do that, has worked for me. One last thing, my ego slips in again now and then. Like I'm at conferences, I want people to know, hey, I'm the private first guy, okay? It's really me. So that dickiness comes back a little bit. But as much as I can, I release it to realize it's really about private first. It's really not about me. Yeah, thanks for keeping it real. That does happen. I've been there before too. I totally get it. Yeah. Um, I actually really love this idea because I just then I was thinking, wow, wouldn't it be cool if you did have, you know, like you do with a, a team of other leaders that are teaching the content that you or the concept of the content that you originally came up with in the frameworks and then you band together like once a year or once every quarter yes. or six months and then share like, hey, what is the feedback or what... Um, new ways have you found to teach this framework or what things have you fine-tuned that's made it even better and then eventually you can bring out like a revised version or a second edition or third edition whatever it may be of the book or the system yes I, i'm just looking at my side here as i oh my gosh I, I should keep this here at the office oh no that's not it so profit first uh my book is the original but now there is i think nine what we call derivative books. So there's another book called, and you can see it on Amazon, Profit First for e-commerce sellers. Um, there's Profit First for um, contractors. Um, we're now in discussions and trying to work on Profit First for minority-owned uh, businesses. And each author of those books um, are, are experts in that category. They're known in that category and are further defining themselves. So now what I found is people that are known in a category with a concept that, that I helped develop were combining forces and now they're moving in with something that really complements what they're doing. So th they're growing faster too. It really f facilitates this win-win potential. And, and there's more revenue generated. Like, let's not forget this. This is not just, it's not about just contribution to society. The only way you can give is if you get first. Like you've got to have income and profitability to sustain these efforts. So those books um, a licensing fee comes into our organization, allowing us to do more of the stuff we're doing. Uh, and those people who are doing their keynotes and selling books, they're generating that revenue from keynoting and selling books and, and the contracting and consulting work that they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So break it down. Your next book that you have coming out, I know that it's not out yet. Yeah. Spill the beans. 
Yeah, I'm so pumped. I'd like to spill this. a couple beans for us. Thanks. That'd so be it awesome. comes, it's called <laughs> Fix This Next. And uh, we were talking about this off air. The thesis is the biggest challenge entrepreneurs have is knowing what their biggest challenge is. I see it all the time. Like, I'll, an entrepreneur will come to me and say, hey, um, my business is struggling. What should I do? I said, well, where's it struggling? And they're like, oh, you know, we don't have enough money coming in. I'm like, well, what's the source of that? Um, many entrepreneurs revert to saying we need to sell more, and that's actually a grand mistake. Uh, businesses that are grown that grow without control are are cancerous. That's what that's the definition of cancer: uncontrolled cellular growth, right? And that's what businesses do. Here's the concept of fix this next. Fix this next is a tool I developed to pinpoint the biggest challenge a business has. I developed it for myself. I needed this, and it's based on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I'm studying Maslow's hierarchy of needs and what he identified in, in the, the human hierarchy of needs. There's five levels. The base level being physiological. Like we need to breathe in air and drink water and eat food to survive. The next level up, he says, is, is uh, safety mechanisms. Like we need to have shelter around us, uh, some degree of financial security, uh, make sure that you know, we're protected from being of harm, like so that someone doesn't put a gun to our head. Uh, next level up is belonging in his, that's, that's the experienced community, um, to be accepted, to, to experience love and share love. Then he has esteem, and the highest level he has is called self-actualization. Well, I looked at this, I said, oh my gosh, a business is its own entity. A business has a hierarchy of needs, and, and they, they translate loosely across. The foundational need of every business, its equivalent of breathing air, is sales. Sales is the source of income. If you don't have any sales, you, your, your oxygen, the necessary to support the business is not coming in. But the next level up, the safety level, is, is profit. Um, profit is the retention of cash, ultimately for distribution to the business owners. And what that translates to is stability. So while sales is the creation of money, um, profit is the creation of stability for an organization. And even at these two levels, as I was doing my research, I found so many businesses are confused. So many businesses are not financially integral. They're not stable. The, the cash flow is all over the place and they revert to trying to sell their way out of it, which is the same as saying someone has a gun to your head, safety, and instead of trying to block the gun away or pleading for your life, instead what businesses are doing is saying, oh, let's just breathe more deeply. <sighs> Hopefully that'll save my business. No, you, you don't revert to sales when we have a stability issue. That's a profitability issue. The next level up is called order, which is the, uh, is the creation of efficiency throughout the organization. Consistent efficiency. The definition of true efficiency is where the business owner is not needed to run the business at all. Uh, McDonald's is a classic traditional example. Go to a McDonald's, ask at any McDonald's for, to meet with the business owner when you arrive there, uh, and the business owner won't be there because it's a systems-oriented uh, business. The owner does not cook the fries, does not flip the burgers, and does not work in that closet they call an office. That's the store manager. The owner is out scouting properties, working on the vision uh, for expansion. The next level up, so there we have now sales, profit, order. The next level up is called impact. Uh, impact is where you realize your business is not about the transactions, it's about the transformation. Are you creating community? Are you giving people a greater service than just the product you provide or service? And the highest level is legacy. Legacy is the creation of permanence, and this is where a business can live into perpetuity, absence of the owner. It's designed to live, in, live on forever. And so it's these five levels that define a business. And sadly, most businesses always revert to the base and say, we need more sales. We need more sales. 
FixThisNext is a tool to pinpoint where in this hierarchy of levels you fit and then to, to drill down even further and say what specific task needs to occur now to give stability to your business. The last thought is this. It's like building a structure. If I'm building a building, a five-story building, I don't start by building story three. I need a foundation first, of course. I start building the foundation. The thing is, I don't keep on building a foundation forever. You can have this massive foundation and put a little tool shed above it. The tool shed will fall in. You build the foundation necessary, sales necessary to support profit. Once the profit level, level one's in place, now you can build level three, which is the order level. At any time, if there's a problem or crack in the foundation, you, you don't build level four. You go back to the foundation, you shore that up before you build level up higher levels. So the business hierarchy of needs, that's why I call this, is a way to navigate around, and sometimes you ping pong up and down to different areas that need addressing now to support the entire structure. Wow. I love this. When is this book coming out? What day? April 28th. It is available for pre-order on Amazon today. Um, and April 28th is, of 2020 is the big release date. And I'm, I'm pumped. I, uh, I think this is the most important concept I've developed because I think this is the biggest challenge. Too many entrepreneurs, our agenda is dictated by the email uh, that comes in that morning or the questions outside our doorway as opposed to working on the impactful things. Right, right. Now, what mindset would a successful entrepreneur hold at the forefront of their mind when it comes to their belief in who they are as an entrepreneur in order to be able to establish and even to scale a successful business? I think humility, um, and, and that's, that's a challenge for me because I want to be bold and strong. Um, but humility means to me I don't know the answers. I have a vision of an outcome I want. I think I know a path to get there. But it's the people around me, my clients, my employees, my vendors, my family, that actually may know a better path. And humility allows me to listen. And it's when I actually listen deeply that I hear different perspectives that actually define a clearer, more likely path to achieving the outcomes I want. Love this. Love it. Love it. Michael, I often uh, teach and talk about the vision process. For not just for, for business, but for life as well. We've got to have a well-rounded vision. Uh, when you step into your visioning process, how does it work for you? Like, what do you do? What do you consider when it comes to crafting your vision for the future? Yeah, so um, I, I journal. Um, and that journaling doesn't actually give me the vision for the future, but it allows me to relieve the distraction of the moment. So journaling, I just write down whatever thoughts are in my mind now. It's kind of putting the baggage at the door. And then visioning, um, I just talk about how can I be of greater service to my purpose. Um, purpose is so important to me. And I think when I had a lack of purpose, it was just about how do I get bigger? Um, and, and that's not about that anymore. Now it's about how do I, how do I really eradicate entrepreneurial poverty? Um, you know, I got hundreds a hundred plus million companies I need to serve in my lifetime. Um, and maybe I can't, maybe I got to leave a legacy behind with books and other ways that it can continue on in my absence. Um, but that's where I start. And then I evaluate the market um, of, of how is the market moving and what can I put in front of the market's needs that hasn't been done yet. You know, I, it was very clear with private first that 
there's a need for these businesses to be profitable. What can I put in front of those people to serve them? And, and always, and selfishly, it starts with my own challenges. I, when I have that challenge, I got to fix it for myself first. So visioning is, is rooted in purpose and, um, and, and playfulness. You know, it, it, I just, I allow part of the path to reveal itself. You know, Christmas morning, I, I still like to get gifts that I don't know what's coming. Uh, it's nice to open some and say, this is amazing. What a, what a thoughtful idea. And I think for my business too, I know what I need to achieve. I know those elements, but it's for me, it's not such a clear um, visual that, that there won't be some fun surprises on the, on the path. Yeah, that's really important. And, and it's funny because it's like, we like the surprises that we want. It's just the ones that we don't want. Which yeah, but that's true. That's true. Yeah, I, <laughs> I don't like those either. <laughs> exactly. So we love to make our episodes actionable, right? Yep. So for anyone that's listening right now, uh, let's say they're an entrepreneur. Okay. So if they're an entrepreneur, uh, what are three things that they should jump in and audit right now in their business or consider or maybe even start implementing yeah. that could be a game changer for them? I'll give you three implementations. Like you can do all three of these things. And, and uh, there are two simple ones and one, I'll give you one bold one. So the simple one is go set up a new bank account at your bank today and call it profit, a savings account. Allocate 1% of your income there every time it comes in. And this is the greatest way to get that profit muscle built. Once you start allocating money proactively to an account, you'll start seeing the money accumulate and they'll start taking off. That's step one. Uh, the second thing you can do today is no longer call yourself an entrepreneur. This is something that was really tough for me to do because I love what entrepreneurship is and I love the word. The only problem is entrepreneurship has become bastardized. It's now grind and hustle. If you're an entrepreneur, you've got to work harder and longer than anyone. And that's not the intention of an entrepreneur. Change your label to shareholder. And so the next time you're at a party and someone's like, hey, what do you do for, for a living? You say, well, I'm a shareholder in small business. You will get like some weird looks and people are going, what the F is that? I do. But what shareholders do is we... We don't work for the company. We own equity in the business, but we render our opinions through votes and, um, and be sitting on a board. That's what a shareholder should do. So by saying that label, we often will start behaving consistently with the label. The more frequently I say I'm a shareholder in business, the less I'm working in my business and I'm more I'm working on the vision of the business. And here's the last one. This is the bold one. Uh, whatever today is when you're listening to this, go on your calendar and schedule 18 months from today, one and a half years from today, a four week vacation, four consecutive weeks away from the office. This is a full visual disconnect, a full digital disconnect, a full physical disconnect. There's no access to the business for four consecutive weeks. What I expect to happen is the oh shit moment because that's what happened to me. But starting today, what's going to happen is you can no longer say, how am I going to get these things done? You have to start asking, who's going to get these things done? By, by being away for such a long block of time from your business, you have to make your business systematized. You have to prepare to work without you. And that's the whole reason we started the business. So block out that time so that your business can start running on its own. Ooh. Ballsy. <laughs> I, I'm going to implement all three because they're really powerful. And Thanks. Yeah, the, this whole thing of setting up an account and then putting money into that account. Uh, one of my great mentors, Dr. John Martini, he's very big on setting up multiple accounts. He has one for uh, his profits. He has one for uh, luxury, one for his personal Perfect. savings, one for Perfect. business investment, one for contribution. And he, at first, I was like, oh, man, you're splitting so much of that up and putting it. And he said, the thing is, Joe, 
when you practice doing that and even just like rewarding yourself, even though you're not spending it at time and most of the time, he said, it actually trains your brain to go into more abundance. So whenever there's moments where like the business isn't performing as well as it usually does, you know, some months or, you know, the season slows down or some things come up, some big spends, whatever. He says, you're not dropping yourself into scarcity. You're always operating from abundance, you know, and it became really apparent to me at times during my growth uh, with, with my business where I started to hire more people. I started spending more on marketing. Uh, I, I like had a year where I wasn't paying attention to my numbers and I was just like overspending in most areas. And then it hit me, you know, delayed nine months later. And I look at it and I'm like, oh my gosh. And I started to create from desperation, which is one of the worst places to create from. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so my whole thing is like getting myself, I've got like a new meter, like a new point where I'm anything under that. It's like the danger zone, right? So I'm making sure I'm above the line. And for me, it's more about operating from that place because that's more inspiration rather than desperation. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Desperate people do desperate things. You can't be there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be out of alignment making these, these type of decisions, you know? Yeah. So yeah, no, it's good, man. Uh, so I love this conversation. And if you're listening to this right now, just please like make sure you take notes. If you take your business seriously, make sure you get your hands on profit first uh, from Michael and also your new book uh, that's coming out in April. What's the name of that book again? It's it's fix this next. Fix this next. Yep. Beautiful. So make sure you get your hands on that. Now, Michael, we are wrapping this interview up just before we do. Where can we find you online? Oh, thank you. Um, so I'll give you two ways. One is go to MikeMikalowitz.com. Here's the problem. Mikalowitz is impossible to spell and even harder to pronounce. So uh, I made a shortcut. It's MikeMotorbike.com. It was my nickname <laughs> in high school. My nickname in high school was Mike Motorbike. I've never driven a motorcycle. That's the irony. But go to MikeMotorbike.com. It forwards you to my website. I have my own podcast called Entrepreneurship Elevated. You can get that you know, on Stitcher and iTunes and all the things. But uh, it's also available through my site. I'm a blogger. And uh, all my books, I have every book available. I have two or three chapter downloads. And it's not just the first few chapters. It's, it's the impact chapters. Because my intention is when you read the book, you'll actually see results, uh, even without having to buy it. So that's all at MikeMotorbike.com. Just click on Get the Tools, and you get the all. And one single email, too. It's not like tons of emails. One email, everything you need. Wonderful. Mike, thank you so much, man. Thanks a million for jumping on. Now, before we wrap up the interview, one last question. The question is, if you were to deliver your last 30-second speech with the world, what would that last 30 seconds sound like? Um, That the hardships and challenges we face will define our future in the greatest ways if we simply accept it that way. And um, I've, I've, I've surrounded myself with people now that have faced challenges. Mine was a piggy bank moment. And I've, I've faced, met people have faced challenges a thousand times worse. And um, they've all said that that was the, to your earlier point, that that was the greatest opportunity of their lives, that it was a changing moment. And living through it sucked. And no one wants to revisit it, but it became defining of who they are and, and allowed them to be of great impact. So those challenges are an opportunity.